0: Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and myself, Chris Whitman, and you can find out more about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Before we get started, this is the trigger warning. This is a horror podcast, so we will be talking about horror culture, which could involve sensitive subjects, you know, the the bad things like child abuse, rape, F-bombs, things that could be sensitive. Therefore, we have to do this disclaimer, and with that out of the way... That is that is the disclaimer when we talk about bad things. And good things. It's hmm. it's a fun podcast. Hmm. Uh, let's see. What do we have any uh, in, in the neighborhood of announcements or things coming up, Steve?
1: Quite a bit, actually. So well, by the time this airs, who knows what's gonna happen, but Twitter seems to be continuing its its death throes, so hmm. If you go to our uh on the main page, there is a link to our Discord. You can feel free to join us over there. Um, for self-promotional stuff, I've created a coupon code for my book, A Guide to the Recovery Toolbox. If you go to smashwords.com, the uh, coupon code is LE69E. And nice. you can purchase it for, uh, yes, uh, you can purchase <laughs> it for 99 cents. You can also check out Chris's webcomic at pieces-compendium.com. Uh, or
0: piecesofflesh.com as- if you don't know how to put dashes in URLs. you yeah, know That's that's a tough thing.
1: That is also an oppor- opportunity. Pie- yes.
0: Piecesofflesh.com.
1: Yes. As far as what's on the calendar, also too much to list. We've got, I think, like 10 authors, a director, an actor. Today we're talking to Professor Tim Wagner. Later this afternoon we'll be speaking to Lisa Morton, also from StokerCon. Yes. So lot, lots of stuff on the calendar. Yeah.
0: Lots of stuff. But as he briefly mentioned a moment ago, today we have with us Mr. Professor Tim Wagner, author of 50 or more novels, uh, close to 200 short stories, five tie-in novels for the Supernatural TV universe, and a Stargate SG-1 universe, SG-1 Valhalla, He also wrote the movie novelization of Halloween Kills and was nominated or uh, award winner. Award winner, four time award winner for the Bram Stoker Award. That is is a lot. That is quite a resume, sir. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. My pleasure.
1: Uh, I don't know how much we discussed offline, but the general theme of the interview actually is less about your work and more about your actual uh, interest in the horror genre, what you're a fan of. Um, We. Go through four stages basically, talking about childhood, adolescence, and um, teenage years and and adulthood, and then like a wrap up section at the end where we cover any reoccurring themes that may have come up. Um, That said, it's not meant to be a therapy session. So if there's anything that you don't answer, just say pass and we'll move on. But starting with childhood, what are some of your earliest memories of scary things? The very, very
2: first one is uh, my dad used to read me dinosaur books we get out of the library. And, you know, I'd sit in his lap, and I was probably three or four, and I couldn't read. I didn't understand how anybody could read. I told (laughs) him it must be some kind of magic of the eyeballs because I couldn't figure it out. But I learned how to recognize the names of dinosaurs from their shape because I was so fascinated with these things. And then I had, like, a recurring dream that a flying saucer landed in the cul-de-sac where he lived. And it was cool because the dream was all, like, crimson light. And Mm. then it opened up and dinosaurs came out. Mm -hmm. And so that was like my first kind of horror scenario, I guess I created. That's cool. But then uh, when I was around that same age, you know, back then, because I'm 59, so we're talking probably 1968 or something. It, the stuff that would show up on TV was pretty safe for anybody to watch in terms of horror. And mm-hmm. so my folks let me watch Frankenstein versus the Wolfman. And I'll never forget it because I was fascinated. I guess I knew that these monsters existed, but the fact that they existed in the same universe and could meet just freaked me out. I thought it was awesome. Mm. Uh, and so I, I made my dad teach me how to draw the Wolfman. He taught me a little simple way to do it I could still do. And so, you know, that's where it really all began with me. Um, There's also um, one of my earliest memories is my mom taking me around. I probably wasn't even a year old, but I swear I remember this. It was Halloween and she took me out for trick or treat. She dressed me in this little pink bunny onesie and Hmm. took me up to the neighbors just to sort of like show me off or whatever. And I had no idea what was going on. Uh, There were all Hmm. these I think I recognized them as kids, but you know they were all in these weird costumes running around, and people were making a fu- the adults were making a fuss over them. I had no idea what was happening. I think I probably most of us probably spent having no idea what's going on, Mm-mm. but it was just like such a obviously an impactful thing because I still remembered all these years. Mm. So that first Halloween also made a big impact on me. Okay.
0: Have you listened to the show before, sir? Because we just went through like four questions in a row. <laughs> like,
2: <laughs> early scary memories, scary dreams.
0: Oh, yeah. And by the way, Halloween. <laughs> yeah.
2: but those, are, those are the ones. And then I remember being a little bit older, fascinated with uh, the, the guy who wrote Clifford the Big Red Dog, Nelson Bridwell,
1: huh. wrote
2: a couple books, you know, How to uh, Train Your Monster. And and it was about if you're going to have a monster for a pet, like a vampire or a mummy, because there's different sections on all of them, just Mm -hmm. what it was like. And the idea that you're like, I could have a monster for a pet, I thought was great. Mm -hmm. I I, I traded a kid a bunch of baseball cards so I could get that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Can relate. Two trading cards and also early fears of dinosaurs. (laughs) I blame Jurassic Park.
2: Mm.
0: That'll do it. Right, that's like a real fear because people are dumb and will do dumb things, so that could actually
1: happen. Yeah, the things that you've already mentioned here—they uh, all seem obviously positive and pleasant. Some of our guests have reported there being sort of a defining or dividing, div- dividing, the div- dividing line where prior to that they were scared, and then after that they they found pleasure in horror. Was there anything that? did scare you that you remember or was it all positive from the very start yeah not
2: a divi- dividing line, but it was opposite uh, you know horror was all just fun for me until a certain point. Yeah. Uh, one of the, f- the first points was uh, you know like a lot of kids my age who were into horror I read famous monsters magazine it was like the Bible for horror kids and mm. the Exorcist had come out and of course there was all this you know uh, hype about it you know it was a cultural phenomenon. Didn't, didn't see it, but they had a picture in famous monsters magazine and it was one of the pictures where Reagan's head is like turned all the way backwards. Mm-hmm. And the hype of it, knowing that this was like such a big deal and looking at that and trying to imagine what it would feel like to have my head turned backwards it's I actually made me throw up. And it was mm-hmm. the just because of the anxiety of it. I did it to myself. And so I cut the picture out and got rid of it. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. Cause like as a kid, I was like, you know, this picture is, you know, look what it did to me. And I, you know, I told my great grandmother who was there and she's like, well, we got to get rid of it. And I'm saying, th- you know, and at the time, even then I'm like, you did this to yourself, you dumbass, you know that, right?
0: <laughs> and,
2: but still, you know, that happened. And then, um, when I was about nine, uh, uh my uh, great uncle passed away and he was like mm-hmm. a second father to me. And it was the first relative that I knew, uh, you know, and died that I really knew of. Right. And, that had a huge impact on me. And I was watching a horror movie. I think it was earth versus a spider. Not too long after that, just, you know, an old black and white, not particularly expensive, you know, made a horror movie, but this giant spider, we don't see it re- go through this little desert town and ransack it, but you kind of hear it and you kind of see the aftermath. And part of that is this little kid who, he was blonde and wore glasses, just like I did. And one of his lenses is cracked. Hmm. And he's sobbing. And I realized at that moment that monsters killed people and made them feel the way I felt when my uncle died. Hmm. And it just changed everything for me because it shifted me, my view from look at that monster. Isn't that cool to look at the victim and what's happened Hmm. to them? I wonder if that
0: had Uh, anything to do with the fact that he looked like you, you know, like, can you identify the character more?
2: Yeah, I think it probably did. I really do. And then not too long after that, I almost drowned on vacation. Uh, hmm. Matter of fact, it was 50 years ago this summer, and just a few days ago, I returned to that lake for the first time, because I'm like, it's a 50th anniversary, I'm just going to go say, <laughs> screw you, to that lake, since I survived. Hmm. But almost, you know, having that sort of one-two whammy of, you know, relative dying, and then my, you know, maybe I wouldn't have died, but in my mind, I thought I was going die to die if I hadn't been pulled out, because hmm. I couldn't swim. It really changed a lot. And I started to veer away from horror for a while. Uh, You know, once I hit like junior high, I started getting into comic books and superhero comics. And I still would read like um, a lot of the horror comics that were out, like Tomb of Dracula from Marvel and Werewolf by Night and all that. Hmm. But it wasn't the same. You know, my focus on horror wasn't the same after a certain point.
1: That's not uncommon. We have talked to other guests who veered away from it and came back later in life. Funny, you had another one of our common questions about, you know, if, whether or not something in real life actually terrified you. <laughs> so there's that. Interesting that you said that you couldn't swim. Have you learned to swim since then?
2: Sort of. Enough so I probably won't drown. <laughs> right. But well, my wife was on a swim team as a kid and was scouted for the Olympics. So I got I got her to save me. And I also made sure both of my daughters had swimming lessons from the time they were like one. Mm. So they can both swim like fishes. So that's my revenge on the lake. And <laughs> the lake's never getting my kids. Right. There you
0: go. No, that's good. good kind of revenge. Progressive. Yes. Did you yeah, have It anybody- shows up
2: in my, my fiction a lot, the, the drowning or water and stuff like that. So
1: hmm. it's had a big impact on my work too. Well, you know, write what you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, was there anybody in your family who was a fan of horror? Uh, my
2: dad liked all kinds of, of, you know, speculative fiction, science fiction the most, uh, some fantasy, some horror. And so I would read whatever books he had lying around. And so I would read a lot of science fiction, but I really gravitated more to the fantasy and horror whenever I you know, was there. It just stimulated my imagination more.
1: Going back to Halloween for a second, you mentioned the uh, memory of the childhood in the onesies. Did you have a favorite costume in childhood? I mean, it
2: was a monster. Okay. If it wasn't a monster, I didn't want it. I, I always wondered why people would even bother like dressing up like a cowboy or a princess. I'm like, this is Halloween. Right? Everybody is should be a holiday. monster. Yeah. So uh, now, you know, as I got older, I realized that it, it's really cool that people can dress up like anything because Halloween's the only holiday dedicated to the imagination. You can be whatever you want on Halloween. Right. Yep. If you want to dress up like Barbie, you know whatever, go for it. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. There'll probably be a lot of Barbies after the the new movie comes out. I was just thinking that. But yeah, so I would. you know, I always wanted to be like Frankenstein or the Wolfman or Dracula. Did you ever do the uh, the classic mummy
0: with toilet paper?
2: That's a good question. to ever do. one year? Um, I'm not religious, but my, some of my relatives went to a Quaker church, Friends Church, uh, in our town, and they had a. This was back before. When you could do this, when the church would have a Halloween party in the basement. I mean, one year the pastor came dressed as Satan with this giant Satan head and wow. everybody thought it was hysterical. You know, <laughs> it was back It was back when people, I mean, I don't know if that would be everywhere, but at least in my little community for that church, you know, people didn't think that it was just fun. You know, they didn't worry about it. But one year when I was older, I dressed up as a prop, kind of. Uh, I was wrapped up as a mummy with like a, like a stake through my heart. And, mm-hmm. uh, people, kids, the little kids would come up and poke, like poke at me and, uh, see if I was alive or not. And of course they, some of them poked pretty hard and I mm-hmm. <laughs> did not react, but and then when it was react. Time for, wow, yeah. And then had, when it was time to do the, uh, the unmasking, you know, they got to see that I really wasn't a prop. Mm-hmm.
1: So that was a lot of fun. The, uh, the pastor thing. Yeah. That wouldn't go today. Cause you'd have that prop up on <laughs> social media and that pastor would be canceled. ASAP. Yep. Canceled.
2: Yep. All you'd need is one person without a sense of humor with the phone. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So you already answered your least favorite costume would have been anything that wasn't a monster. Yep. Other than the flying saucer one, did you have any other reoccurring dreams in your childhood? Yeah, I had one. This
2: is really weird, but I had one where uh, I probably was like uh, late junior high, maybe. I don't know. Around in there. And in the dream, our cat was up on the roof. And, in the dream, I was worried like like the cat can't get off the roof by itself, but in the dream, I was worried it couldn't, so I tried to coax it to come down, and I was going to catch it and the cat kind of hesitated and hesitated and finally jumped, and as it came down toward my face, it was in slow motion, and everything went black hmm. and then it repeated with the cat jumping, same thing, and then it repeated again with the cat jumping, and then that was it and then, I don't know how long after that it started to happen, you know that it's all everything. In the in the dream and every feeling and thought I had in real life was what I had in the dream. I just didn't recognize it yet. Mm. And the cat, just as the cat was about to jump, I, I remembered. And so I you know, put out my hand and you know with my palm out, you know told the cat, you know, stop." And the cat looked shocked, and I had a feeling like the entire universe tilted to the left and then tilted back. To the right and everything felt okay and i looked behind me and i saw that my dad because we live in the country and my dad would sometimes have like stuff lying around like there were some metal rods like right behind me that i would have might have landed on if the cat had come down on my face mm. so instead i ran and got a can of cat food put it in the shed next to the roof and the, the cat jumped onto it
1: mm.
2: but uh that's the most like dramatic uh, recurring dream i had hmm. um it's very involved Yeah, yep yeah, and it was uh It was Like I said, it was really weird. So I don't know what it was. Who knows? Maybe people have memories that, you know, uh, you have an experience now and in your mind, you think that you somehow remembered it from before. You know, I'm not saying it was a legitimate psychic experience or whatever, but it sure felt like it at the time.
1: It's very interesting because it's very similar to something that I have said in the past, but yours is a much clearer example of what I wasn't able to describe. And what I mean by that is that. I used to get deja vu feelings a lot when I was a kid as well. And at some point I did connect that I would experience those feelings on days when something either really good or really bad happened Mm -hmm. at some other point in the day. Like the dream that I had was not related to what happened, good or bad, but it was something else that happened on the same day. And Mm -hmm. so that if I – had a déjà vu déjà vu feeling, but nothing good or bad had happened. I was walking on eggshells for the rest of the day because that was like my warning, and so it's very oh, interesting, interesting that you had something happen literally like back to back where you were able to identify this this could have been the bad outcome. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. It's the only one I had like that. I had, I had like
2: little snatches of, of life that I would dream that would come true. Most boring things imaginable. It's yeah. so like, Oh, I'm washing dishes today. You know, it would be like exactly. 30 seconds of me washing dishes.
1: Yeah. I remember the only one I remember was I was walking past some house and I looked over at the flowers in front of the house. Like, yeah. Anyway, uh, other than the drowning experience, anything else, uh, actually terrify you in real life as a child? Before my uncle
2: died, I used to spend weekends over at, at his house, you know, my uh, my great aunt and my great grandmother's house. And since they were, I don't know why, since they were old, they, they knew a lot of people who died. And so they took me to a lot of viewings, which was really strange. It was really mm-hmm. strange being this little kid going to viewings of people I had no idea who they were and being around that kind of uh, kind of grief. It, it wasn't scary exactly, but it was it was hard. Yeah. And then... It, it, and all three, like my my uncle, my aunt, my great grandmother kind of all went in a row over the space of a few years. And so that was kind of rough. And so, you know, uh, having that sort of, because uh, they, uh, he died of a, like a heart attack just instantly, but the other two died of cancer. And so any kind of like body thing like that that could happen to me kind of bothered me. And then when I was 31, I did have cancer. I had testicular cancer. And they they caught it early enough that uh, I was fine. You know, surgery took care of it. And, you know, it's like nothing ever happened to me. But I was diagnosed. And then four days later, on Memorial Day, I, I had surgery. And evidently, according to one of my doctors, I had like PTSD from it because I couldn't process any of those emotions. that happened so fast. And my first daughter was only a few months old. And the, mo- the most frightening thing was I was terrified of leaving her. You know, I just had her. I didn't want to leave her without a dad. Right, And then so like about uh, not quite 10 years later, I started having panic attacks and things like that. And then once I sort of, with the help of doctors, you know, figured out what was going on, I got better. But for a while there, I was like just waiting for anything to go wrong with my body, Uh, especially when the kids were little. I mean, they're both grown up now. So if I keel over dead, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid of like uh, uh, leaving them like I was, you know, or just not being able to fulfill my you know my responsibility as a dad to them so i found that you know, super terrifying and it was a lot to work through but uh hopefully i'm on i'm been on the other side of it for a while now i feel a lot better about it
1: that's good yeah my um my father unfortunately had uh lymphoma that he put into remission three times and that's one of the kinds that can't carry it it's you just put it into remission um fortunately slash unfortunately you know he. He didn't end up passing away, but not due to that. Hmm. Flipping that last question around, was there ever a time in your childhood when you felt completely calm or safe or bliss? I went in my room, like, playing with, I guess they weren't exactly action figures back then. Playing with, like, you know, the little plastic dinosaurs
2: and plastic army men and stuff like that and making up stories for them. Uh, in my aunt and uncles, it was uh, their basement. I could go down and play. And I even had, like, my own mad scientist lab down there, hmm. you know, with just these little plastic juice bottles that I, you know, they're washed out and I used to pretend like I was mixing chemicals. And mm-hmm. uh, so with just having time like that alone with my imagination, reading books, reading comics, whatever, I always felt safe with, with <laughs> that kind of thing.
1: Always. The first time that I learned that other people uh, made quote unquote rat poison <laughs> 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 with, with like household chemicals <laughs> that I wasn't the only kid that did that. And I was just like, what? <laughs> I think that's everything that I wanted to ask for the childhood section. Let's move into teen section. So you mentioned to Dracula. I remember that mm-hmm. you did say that you kind of veered away from it, but in terms of uh, if not horror, then at least maybe scary stuff. Do you remember a couple things that stick out to you from your teenage years?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, I still would go to every horror movie. It just wasn't like a, the focus, You know, it was like everything was a great big mix in comics, really. It impacted me in such a way because you'd read Spider-Man and one week, you know, a month, Spider-Man's fighting a supervillain. But the next month, it's a crime organization. And the next month, it's vampires from the future, you know, anything. And it's just this weird eclecticism. You just never knew what the hell you were going to get. Right. And before there was any kind of, like, choice in television, you know, we still, we just had three or four channels and you watched what you watched. And so... You would get a crime show followed by a science fiction show followed by a news show or something. And so our whole experience was one of just all these genres and elements just all stirred up together. And I think it's no wonder where you see a lot of writers of my generation. It's kind of how they write, where it's just all this stuff that we draw on. And, you know, even if we intended to be, you know, we think it's a horror story when we, by the time it's done, it's really just what they kind of call weird fiction where it's a bunch of stuff mixed mm-hmm. up together. But yeah, I read all the Marvel, Marvel comics, and loved every single one of them. Marvel also had some black and white horror magazines. And you know, One of them was, I forget what it was called, Dracula Lives or Tomb of Dracula. I'm looking off to my left there because I've got still got the issue. But it was, uh, I read it when I was 17, I think, 16 or 17. And it had an interview with Stephen King right after hmm. he had done The Shining. So, you know, he wasn't Ooh, super famous was or rich yet. So he would be, you know, have an interview in a comic book, you know. And I read this whole thing, and it was the very first time that it clicked for me that a person could choose to be a writer. You know, I knew that there were names on these books, I knew they were writers. Of, I just never thought about like a person like me could choose. And I was reading it down in my bedroom, and I wandered down the hall in the uh, family room my mom was, and I told her that, you know, I think I might like to be a writer. And Without missing a beat, she said, you know, I think you'd be a really good one. And uh, so who knows, you know, I probably still would have ended up doing this, but you never know. So reading that horror magazine with that interview with Stephen King, you know, it definitely planted that seed, there's no doubt.
1: Nice. Yeah, I wonder if it was the Dracula lives one that was black and white because I think I had mm-hmm. copies of Tomb Dracula and that one I think was color. I didn't know that Marvel did black and white though. That's
2: interesting. Oh yeah, they had Tales of the Zombies. I like that one a lot. It was uh, since the, the way they tried to do from the zombies point of view is they wrote it in second person since the zombie, and he was a regular person and was killed, and he's not a flesh-munching zombie that he hadn't picked up in popularity yet. He was a voodoo zombie, so just like a robot mm. that people could control. But they mm. would say things like, you stand in the rain and you can't feel it hit your face, and stuff like that. And I just found that fascinating, and I still use second person every once in a while in my stories.
1: Mm. Anything that you, do you remember anything that actually scared you, though, or was it all still enjoyment up until, what was the thing that you said that was the trigger? Well, the, the
2: it's hard to for, for people that are younger, it's hard to to explain to them the impact that the, some of the movies had coming out. So it's hard. it's impossible to explain the impact of seeing Star Wars for the first time or Indiana Jones for the first time. But for me, one of the big ones was seeing Jaws. This is preteen. Great. I was like in fifth grade. But from all the way the T V Ads made Jaws look like. You know, there's no internet to check out. You would just see a commercial on TV, see an ad in the paper, maybe. It just looked like an adventure story with, you know, a monster. So I was all set. And I had never experienced that level of suspense in my Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And I was Mm -hmm. absolutely terrified. And it didn't help that I'd almost drowned a few years earlier. So I was terrified the whole time. And then at the very end, when the shark jumps up on the boat to eat Quint. And I'm looking at this shark and his jaw, you know, his uh, his lower jaw is not like matching up to his upper. It's kind of sliding side to side as he's chewing. And I was like, you know, you can see the teeth are rubber too, like when they come down to bite Robert Shaw. Oh,
0: I know. That's one of the worst parts. You can see it bend.
2: Yeah. And I was like, I could not believe I was afraid of this thing for so long. And I burst out in hysterical laughter and literally fell out of my chair onto the floor of the movie theater and kept laughing. I ruined that goddamn movie. For everybody in the theater. <laughs> uh, but like a lot of people around that time, you know, suddenly I was. You know, afraid of water, just the thought of it, the mm-hmm. idea that the, you can't see what's there, anything could be there, and it's a wonderful metaphor for horror, and a wonderful mm-hmm. metaphor for just like the dangers in life and the things we worry about that we just don't know is there. And then when uh, the original Halloween came out, you know, I had never seen any kind of intense horror movie like that. The ones you saw on TV were always, you know, they were had the uh, they were always sanitized for your for your protection. Mm-hmm. You know, they had scenes cut out or whatever, or just didn't show up. And I I went with my sister's boyfriend at the time, and it was a a small little theater uh, in the neighborhood, and uh, I was terrified. And then there were some young girls in front of us, younger than us, and uh, they would scream as soon as something happened. And then my friend, he laughed, and then I was like, wait a minute, (laughs) I suddenly understood something, that I understood that the reactions were kind of the same, but... It was a thrill ride. You know, I kind of felt it at that point. And then I just loved the rest of the movie and it was fine. But I didn't have that same sort of, I am terrified by the the suspense of what might occur. It was more like, oh, it's a cool surprise coming up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it really changed how I viewed movies. And so after that, I really wasn't scared, you know, going to see movies. You know, I would be much more scared by ones that would have really bad uh, implications for characters. Like, one of the worst endings I've ever seen, in terms of terrifying or horrifying, is the end of being John Malkovich. Because Mm. once you understand, they don't tell you, but once you see the ending and you put it together on what's awaiting this character, you know, what he has to wait like, who knows what, 10, 20, 30 years for, Mm. uh, it's just awful. It is absolutely horrifying. Mm. And so, that kind of thing still can take me by surprise and just wallop me. But like regular horror movies, no, I don't get scared of them. Although when I saw the Baba Duke the first time I said, Babadook, Duke, 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 I had a little chill. I was like, ugh. That was a little <laughs>
0: chilling, yeah. That was that was yeah. very
2: effective. Yeah. And yeah, same
0: on John Malkovich, because that's just like, it's, it's more than horror or terror. It's the dread of mm-hmm. knowing that you're imprisoned in another person for the rest of your life, or actually for the rest of their life.
2: Right. Just, and that, that eventually, you know, you'll end up moving into your daughter or whatever. Or something yeah. I forget exactly, but yeah, that was it. Was awful. It was awful. Um,
1: horror in your teens, or not horror? Uh, <laughs> Halloween, Halloween
2: in your teens. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you know we stopped doing stuff, going trick or treating around that time, and people didn't really have Halloween parties, at least none of my friends. Hmm. So, and I lived out in the country, so nobody came trick or treating to our house. So Halloween just kind of, kind of went away. I think the last time we went was I was probably a freshman, and it was like trying to go through the motions to recapture something that you couldn't. Mm. It just mm. felt kind of hollow and purposeless. And uh, about the only thing I remember is going into this one guy's house. He was on the phone, and he just had a big bowl of candy, and he just like, take one of each. And uh, I thought that's <laughs> what he meant. What he really meant was take one apiece. And so I was yeah. like taking candy from the thing. Just a, several. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, well, he ran over and he grabbed my wrist really hard and yelled at me, and uh, it was pretty fr- it was pretty scary. Wow. Uh, well, it's, yeah. you know, it's appropriate for Halloween. It's scary. It's, yeah. <laughs> the, the the weirdest Halloween. I was an adult, adult taking my um, youngest da- oldest daughter around. We had just moved to the town where I'm at now. I grew up in this general area, but I was away for 20 years before I came back to teach, and we had bought a house. Uh, my wife was pregnant with her second daughter, so she could, and was on bed rest, so she wasn't allowed to come down. We kind of, so we didn't quite buy it sight unseen, but close. And as I got to know the neighborhood, I was like, "Oh shit! What the hell did I do?" Because there would be like a cage next to a house that looked like it had wolves in it. And we went to this one guy's house and knocked on the door. He was sitting like in his underwear on a stool in an empty in an empty room with newspapers scattered on the floor. <laughs> yeah. There was just like some candy to get. And I was just like, we're moving. <laughs> we're moving the hell out of this place. And so it's just like this idea that you, you know, you or could be invited into somebody's house or you just don't know what's behind these facades. You know, you see a couple of movies. I can't remember the names of them specifically, but there are movies where, you know, somebody is talking to somebody else and they don't know there's like a dead body right there because they can't see it or like, you know, on the other side of the door. Uh, they've got somebody captured and they're just talking normally and so there's that that sense again you just don't know what's behind the veneer that uh, is really frightening mm-hmm. you know it kind of reminded me that or maybe think of like the, the, the veneer with water it's the same way like people's doors like their houses or facades or veneers and you just don't know what you might find by going in and so trick or treating is kind of a you know it really can put you at risk in a lot of ways especially when you just let the kids run around when I grew up, you used, kids just ran all over the place. They just turned you out in the morning, and they figured you'd be home for dinner, and then turn you out again, and you'd be home before dark yeah. or after dark. They didn't care. And I don't know how any of us survived, <laughs> but just that that idea of the veneer, you know, from kind of got to me or settled in me in high school when it came to trick or treating too. seemed a lot less benign. I think too that I was talking to this with uh, I forget who, maybe my wife and. But she was saying, well, that's when those, the, the milk cartons with the kids on them started showing up to remind mm-hmm. everybody that, you know, this is what could happen. And so I think maybe people were just becoming a lot more aware of that sort of thing. So it was a big transition between just sort of, you're free to roam around everywhere and you're safe all the time, at least for kids in a suburb, because there are lots of kids that grew up in places in the world where they know better <laughs> right mm-hmm. from the get-go. Yeah. But we're starting to feel like there was nowhere that was really safe.
1: Yeah. Having a buddy system helps too. You know, if you're a group with a group of friends when you're, whether it's going for Halloween or doing anything, you know, safety in numbers.
2: Yeah.
1: So no parties that cancels the other two questions. Um, any re- recurring or scary dreams when you were a teen? No, sometimes
2: I would have dreams where I was trying to fly or levitate, but I don't know hmm. why. They had a really cool one once where I was a superhero, like you know, like Superman with a cape, and I flew up the side of a skyscraper. That was pretty cool. It, it wasn't a recurring one, but it was awesome. So I still remembered all these years later. Um, I had a I had a dream where my dad was a a vampire, and it was so weird because he was in his chair in the family room, but he had his, you know, uh, like the stereotypical vampire slave girls that are kind of like, you know, around his legs or Sucking whatever. You know how they can, yeah, you know, and and. I was telling him he's my dad and he's like, no, I'm not your dad anymore. You know, it's like, like, some, <laughs> like, you know, it's it's the kind of vampire where like you're, it's like a hollowed out vessel. Something else has got into.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And
2: a lot of times Stephen King, like in uh pet cemetery, he wrote about it like that. He said, it's like mm-hmm. the the dead bodies were like picking up radio signals from somewhere else.
1: That mm-hmm. was
2: pretty scary just because it was, I don't, it was just so intense, but no, I can't think of any. The, the, you know, were very scary about the only one that I have. Oh, I did back then. I also, I used to have dreams of the slow zombies before fast zombies showed up in movies. I had dreams of the slow zombies were coming and what was scary about them is they never stopped. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't matter where you went, you know, it was kind of like the movie. It follows. It doesn't matter where you went. Eventually they were going to catch up to you. Yeah. Or Jason. So I, I would have those. And then uh, I started having dreams that somebody wanted to get into the house. Like I'd hear a noise, and I'd be wandering around the house, tr- trying to figure out who was there, what was there. Uh, and I still have them occasionally. I don't have them as much. Had them a lot when the girls were younger. Hmm. So, but that's about it. I, I tend not to have a lot of a lot of dreams. I don't really remember my dreams much. Like a lot of people, once you get into adulthood, they just they're there. I know they are. I just don't remember them when I get up.
0: Hmm. I wonder if that's why it is. I always, I always assumed it was copious amounts of marijuana, but uh, I think as you get older, you just don't remember dreams as much because yeah. stress, I guess. Ah, maybe,
2: maybe. I did have uh, a lot of dreams where I would find myself wandering through rooms and just talking to people like it was a <laughs> <big> <laughs> gathering or get together. Like
0: occupational dream, not scary or inspiring no. or good. Just like, yeah, all right, I'm in this, I'm in this room,
2: talking to people. This is a dream. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and just wandering through different rooms. And in my mind, I sort of imagined I was going to like a, a an academy at night, like a spiritual academy where I was talking to people or whatever. Okay, and that's I cool, found, actually. Yeah. And I only found out this week that my youngest daughter has dreams like that all the time. And Interesting. I was
0: like, that?
2: yeah, that's really weird. I said, it's cool. Yeah. I told her I've had them, but I'd never talked about them around her before. And what so if you so were
0: some... to meet each other in one of these meeting places? Mm-hmm. How would,
2: that'd be crazy. That would be great, <laughs> especially if we remembered it. But yeah,
1: the dreams about flying—I have read in the past that that's a, a metaphor for wanting to escape.
2: Yeah. Oh, really? I heard they were one. supposed to be like sex dreams. It's a metaphor for sex <laughs> for some reason. Everything I like was with to sex. Escape better. Yeah, I like wanting to escape
1: a lot better. Yeah. Do you think that makes sense based on your teen years?
2: Oh, uh, maybe you know, just like a lot of—I mean, I had good friends. And even though we were the weird kids, you know, in a band and in drama club and, you know, liked a bunch of weird stuff and, you know, liking weird stuff wasn't normal, more like it is now. It did you know, I didn't feel like I was out of place necessarily, mm. but yeah, my home life wasn't great. My mom was a depressive agoraphobic and she would have like days where she'd be almost like catatonic wouldn't talk to you and then she'd have better days, but that was hard to live with. And my dad was always about, like, don't make any noise or upset your mom. Uh, She was overweight, so nobody could ever say the word fat or anything that related to that. If somebody would make a joke like that in a sitcom, we'd all freeze. And she also had, it was never diagnosed what it was. It was just back then, they just called it spells. But she would pass out about once a month and fall and make these weird snoring noises. And we were just supposed to, you know, dad said when it happened, just go pat her hand till she gets... You know, wakes up and that was horrifying. For years, if I'd heard of like a big crash anywhere in the house, I would feel that again. But for years, I mean, I would literally have a, like a punch to the gut kind of feeling if I would hear it. So yeah, I could see wanting to. And of course, you know, being a teen, I didn't want anybody to know this. Uh, and right. it wasn't a time when people talked about mental health the way they did now. They didn't have to antidepressants
1: yeah.
2: the way they do now. Doctor gave her valium like that was supposed to help something. But um, so who knows? Uh, you know, she she passed away about. Uh, 25 years ago, maybe. So uh, who knows if she, you know, lived? Maybe they would have found, you know, some good help for her. Or modern kind of therapy and meds would help. But yeah, trying to escape that sort of that sort of feeling—it's like this this weight that was there all the time. Sure, I can I can see one to escape that.
1: Yeah. The um the thing that you said about your mom uh, passing out actually reminds me of something that I saw not that long ago, only maybe a couple of weeks ago, where. I guess there is a form of seizure that is very much like what you just described. The video I saw was taken from like a monitor that was in somebody's kitchen and it was a woman with two children and the mother was basically passing out like this. And the kids had to go basically slap her on the back or in the face or something like that to wake her, snap her out of it. Mm -hmm. And the way you were talking about, you know, patting her on the hand kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, and she
2: says sometimes that it would be something she'd hear on TV that triggered it. She didn't know what, but that's what she thought. Or um, sometimes she'd feel them coming on so she could sit down, which would help, but not always. So I don't know. Yeah, the doctors just assumed it was some kind of form of epilepsy, but it was never diagnosed formally. It was never treated.
1: Well, the next question on the list would have been whether or not you were terrified of something in real life as a teen. Uh, Some of the things that we've talked about kind of line up with that. is there anything that comes off your mind that you want to add to that list or have we covered enough on that topic? (laughs) It's a different, different
2: boyfriend from the one I mentioned before my, my sister, but one of my sister's boyfriends that uh, during our teen years, she's like only two years younger than I am. They had had a fight uh, one night. He was over at the house and they had a fight and he drove away upset and he, he had a car crash and died. Oh, and wow. it, one, it was near another friend's house and he came over to tell my sister. And that whole night, you know, they, friends were there. I was there and trying to somehow, you know, help comfort her. And how can you do that? It's, you just can't. So that kind of thing, and uh, it, it didn't help that one of the friends, I mean, he was in shock too, but he came over to explain to me like, you know, yeah, he, he didn't have a seatbelt on, the window was open, and when the car flipped, he came half out of the window, and, the, you know, he got hit or crunched or whatever here, and he like put his his forearm across my chest, and I was just like, oh God. And I still can remember what th- that feels like to this day. So yeah, that whole, that whole experience was, was pretty rough. So that's still the the fact that you might get the something really bad happens in the middle of the night. I mean, probably everybody's had like the phone call from about a relative being hurt or dying or something. But having something that big, you know, just occur like that moments, uh, or at least a uh, less than an hour, you know, after that you you see somebody
1: uh, that was pretty rough. Mm. Two rough things there that and getting details that maybe you didn't necessarily need to know at that age.
2: Yeah, it's not like you could find that kind of stuff on the internet or, you know, I hadn't seen a lot of movies where they simulated stuff like that. I mean, they existed, you know, in the seventies and eighties, I just hadn't
1: seen them. Hmm. Flipping that run around a good time to ask. Uh, was there ever a time in your teens where you felt completely calm or safe or bliss?
2: Uh, usually like a, uh, you know, like with my friends, and like when we were in band or in drama club or times like that, I'm still reading. Um, I started uh, late junior high, I started drawing like my own comic strip. I made my friends and myself bionic superheroes, like the Six Million Dollar Man.
0: I put my friends in it
2: because I figured that they'd at least read it. I'd have some readers. (laughs) I guess they'd read it because they (laughs) read it. (laughs) Because I wanted to be a comic book. Yeah. I wanted to be a comic book artist back then. And they they always would talk about how terrible my art was, but how good the stories were. It made me mad. Because I I, I only wrote the stories (laughs) to have something to draw. But I really enjoyed doing that, too. And just exploring different kinds of creative things. I felt good in art class. Uh, Yeah. So those are the places where I felt most safe. Okay probably in a movie theater too you know when the lights went down Mm.
1: Mm. well starting to see at least a few uh common themes i mean obviously the the water stuff and Mm. the drowning stuff has come up a couple times um there's something else i saw but it's escaping me at the moment
2: probably sort of like body horror stuff just based on like the stuff with my mom and then
1: yeah different things
2: as i got older i mean i remember my great-grandmother had cancer they, didn't, they weren't going to tell the kids, but the, my aunt figured I was old enough. So she told me and she said, you know, the, she went in, my aunt or grand, great grandmother went in for, I think gallbladder surgery, gallstones maybe. But my aunt, my aunt told me they opened her up and she was so full of cancer. They just closed her up. And oh. I just thought that was horrifying because it's like, I understood that she was going to die, but it was just like, they didn't even try or do anything or I don't know the idea. They saw it and just closed her up. Just horrified me. So yeah, I think there's a like a, a strong kind of theme of body horror that goes on in my life, yeah,
1: that was the other one <laughs> that I was forgetting uh that adds mm-hmm, another mm-hmm. item to the list though <laughs> mm-hmm. i was I was thinking about the the funeral viewings. I think you had mentioned it during the, the yep. funeral viewings. this thing that you just mentioned you did you say that was your grandmother or your aunt yeah, great grandmother and yeah, it's how like a lot of that? families
2: it was weird because it's like some of the relatives would die younger and others would live forever, so mm. So my great grandmother was more like a grandmother to me in some way. You know, they were, and they were like, like my second family. Cause I spent time
1: over there on the weekends. Right. Moving into adult years, what are some of the, like, if you were to pick two, three, four things that have really impacted you or stood out to you as really being important in your adult years in terms of uh, the genre, do you think what comes to mind?
2: I remember uh, one college where I was teaching part-time, I, I ran across Alone with the Horrors, uh, like a retrospective collection of Ramsey Campbell short fiction. And reading that thing, it was just like, a, it's like in the Blues Brothers where the light comes down to the church. You know, it was just, uh, it was amazing. So my, really, my reading shifted over to, to reading a lot more horror and starting to become kind of like, um, almost like a scholar of it, studying it in a way I'd never done before. Just to improve your own art? Yeah, and just for the fascination of it, too. I just loved it so much.
1: Do you remember any particular stories that stood out to you? There was one in uh, Ramsey's collection. I can't
2: remember the name of it, but the kids were drawing um, graffiti uh, of a god, and they they called the god Papa Quetalips. And so it was like an Aztec god or whatever. And the very end of it, it's stated pretty clearly Kind of implied, but mostly stated clearly that the little kids have been, you know, having sex with this god. And it was just horrifying. It was just horrifying the way it was done. It's just the fact that the little kids could stumble across this, start worshiping this god, fall into this
1: thing, be used the way they were. Was it the fact that they were being used that was horrifying?
2: It was the the kind of offhanded way. Uh, the, I think the very last line is a girl said, Papa Kettle Lips did it to me too. And then she runs off. She, t- she told it to an adult. And it was just the way that it just kind of hit you like that and where things sort of all kind of fell into place, too. It's like, you know, one of those stories where it's like somebody trying to crack a safe and the tumblers all click. And the, and the fact that, you know, some of the, the horror I was starting to read were it wasn't just and then the monster ate them. It was a lot more, you know, this is the damage it's doing to somebody's mind or their psyche or their soul or um which I found was starting to find a lot more disturbing. And it's the kind of thing I started writing too, because of that more, even if it was supernatural based, there was still like ultimately an emotional or psychological, uh, you know, foundation to it.
1: I'm still trying to wrap my head around the, like when you say pop kettle did it to me too. Was it because it was like a no one's safe thing or like, um, the breadth of,
2: yeah, I guess it was the kids like giving themselves to this thing because it was, they had sort of, you know, however they connected with it, you know, they had, uh, they were doing all the rights for it. I think they were also leaving little sacrifices for it and whatever. That story is just, you know, the idea. And that was back to when they had a, uh, a little bit earlier, but they, Tom, one of Tom Hanks's first movies was Mazes and Monsters where he was, he was a dungeon master yes. that went nuts, you know, and, uh, so, just the idea that you know the imagin your imagination, the thing that I love the most, could have a dark side. Yeah, that's kind of scary because you know I've got an imagination. What if my imagination started you know turning
1: bad on me? The very ending of that movie, I remember. I don't remember much about the entire movie, but the very ending of it, where he's either writing something or talking to somebody, and says something about how he. Pays the, the innkeeper uh you know this coin for his room every night and every every morning his the like this magical wallet has another coin in it or something like that. Right. right. Like <laughs> I remember. Yeah the, the hospital guy. where he's at. Yeah. Yes. I was just like, oh Metal Hospital. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that I don't remember any of the, <laughs> the movie, but I remember that.
2: Yeah, I remember that too. I don't remember anything else.
1: <laughs> um hmm. okay vulnerability is at least one topic that's come up any other stories or you know whether it be books or movies or whatever in your adult years that stands out to you
2: you know reading a reading a ton of stephen king um starting to read charles grant and uh ramsey campbell uh discovering joe lansdale and uh you know so many others tom picker and douglas Clegg. Uh, so this, this all of that and, uh, you know, starting to read like Cemetery Dance and some of the other magazines that kind of came and went. Yeah, and just really starting to become um, um, sort of subsumed in the, uh, at least in terms of the the art, of of, of, uh, of written art, of the horror culture at the time. Because I didn't know anything about conventions. I didn't, had no clue about them. You know, no internet to connect to people yet like that. Yeah, so just a whole bunch. It was like, for me at that point, it's almost like I was in an ocean. Of uh, all of this stuff
1: right and so for example the last couple of things that you've said there you were listing authors but not particular stories and the reason that i i'm asking about particular stories is because often you know from a psychological standpoint usually the the things that come to mind first come to come to mind for a reason and so i i'm wondering what those first things that come like is there are there particular stories that come to mind
2: yeah you know it's hard i mean trying to to maybe look for patterns. I mean, any kind of story where there's a a loss of control,
1: Mm.
2: where there's nothing you can do, you know, poltergeist, I always, I still use as an example all the time in workshops and things, probably in the, the, the one that uh, I did at StokerCon, you know, because the family is forced to deal with this stuff because their daughter is taken. And, can you imagine a worse feeling of lack of control than your kid? Your kid's not even abducted somewhere on Earth. Your kid's in another right. damn dimension. How do you right. get there? Yeah. And uh, in, in Pet Cemetery, you know, you think you've brought back your kid, but it's not your kid. Um, that kind of thing would always get to me. Like uh, uh, it, it, it's the most obvious version of it is like you know the the pod people in the and the body snatchers, where it's just they're not who you think they are. The people closest to you, you know, that's like kind of the the last veneer that you can get to that the 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 the, the curtain. You don't know what's behind is somebody's face because mm-hmm. you just don't ever know what's in their mind. It's the other. Yeah, it's the worst. The worst thing of this I saw it wasn't even a horror movie, but it's still one of my top five horror movie moments. Along with being John Malkovich and that kid in the Spider movie, was in a movie called The Last American Virgin, which I think was supposed to be a teen comedy, but didn't turn out that way you know there's this guy who loves this unobtainable or at least thinks he loves this unobtainable girl in high school her jock boyfriend gets her pregnant and dumps her so the the boy you know sees her through her abortion and everything and then they spend one night together and he thinks you know this is it we bonded we have a relationship and then when he goes to the school the next day she's in the hallway with her pre- her boyfriend her you know her old jock boyfriend and she just looks at him with this cold look and that's the end of the movie. And when <laughs> I saw that, I'm like, I am staring into an abyss that I don't ever want to look into. <laughs> and for me, it was horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. That, uh, you know, he did all this stuff for her. I mean, not that she would, like, suddenly be in love with him, but just right. it, like, meant nothing. It meant absolutely nothing to her. He meant nothing to her. And it was just horrifying. So yeah. a lot of stories and that have... horror realization. Yeah, and is- the, any story that has that kind of, you don't know what the people closest to you are like are going to do or what they could do. I mean, if you think about how intimate like sex is, I mean, it'd be really easy to kill somebody during sex if you wanted to. Uh, mm-hmm. You have to be so close and, you know, be so vulnerable. And then just emotionally, if you're going to really love somebody, those kind of vulnerabilities, I guess it still just goes back to vulnerability, like you said before, mm-hmm. but those levels of it hit me in adulthood more because I was experiencing those things, you know, in, in ways that I did not, you know, as a young, much younger person.
1: Yeah, and that kind of ties in with what you had said uh, in a couple of the spots too. Not only the um, papa kettle stuff, but also I think you had said something even about your own daughter that and um, it's escaping me at the moment. But
2: yeah, this, it was yeah, it was rough. My first daughter was premature. My uh, my first wife, and their mom, you know, her water broke, but not all the way. So. They had her on bed rest. They said, as long as you can hold off. She, they said, your daughter's almost done, but she's like cookies. We, we want to brown her some more. <laughs> oh, and, God. Yeah, and it was, you know, that was it was lighthearted and fine. But still, you know, it was a little rough few days. Mm-hmm. And then she was born premature, and we had to, like, hook her up to a machine to, I guess mm-hmm. their liver is not quite developed. And so she had to be in this machine that glowed. She was like X-Files baby for <laughs> a few oh, yeah, days. Me too.
0: It I just really? uh, yeah. I was born with jaundice, but uh they, they did have to put yeah. me in the light box with the Clydesdales things on the eyes.
2: Yeah, she had a little bit, but she had this thing just wrapped around her torso, so she didn't have to have anything on her eyes. Oh, that's nice. But yeah, she was fine other than that. A little reflux for her first year. My second daughter had the cord around her neck. Uh, oh. and the doctor our, our pediatrician was wild. My first daughter, she when she was born, he told my wife, he said, don't push. She pushed anyway, and my daughter shot out at, at an angle. And I watched this doctor stop time, and just re- he just said, okay. And he reached over and just plucked her out of the air. And I, I was like, what the <laughs> hell? Cause this is a guy who's delivered a billion babies, but that's what it looked right. like to me. And, <laughs> I know then the same, <laughs> yep, and then we had the same doctor for the second one, and he, he, yeah, when he yeah. started to get worried, that's when I got worried. When my daughter's pulse was going down, I mean, he was going to grab a a scalpel and go in to get her, and then she slipped away from the cord. But that feeling of, like, absolute helplessness Mm -hmm. when there's just stuff you can't do once you have kids and you realize just how absolutely they depend on you and how absolutely fragile they are I mean they're tough too yeah. in ways you <laughs> don't expect but they're they're also fragile in ways that you don't expect either yeah they're a that weird was, that was that, really right? rough yeah and that so that, that sense of helplessness not being able to to help your loved ones or the ones that depend on you so much that was that was hard it was rough I mean it was good it's turned out good so far but I still think you know, I mean, that's like the it's like the uh, price for life. You know, you have to you want to live. You have to be willing to at least live with death because it's all out there. and It's coming for us all. Hmm. You have
1: to find a way to make peace with it somehow. And the only way to choose not to play the game is to meet it anyway. So, mm-hmm. so, so you're still doing the same thing.
2: So you might exactly. as well live if yeah. you can. Yeah.
1: For Halloween as an adult, you mentioned uh, taking your daughter around. Any other particular memories about Halloween other than that one?
2: Yeah, one of the I didn't know they did this. It was really cool that uh, my oldest daughter wanted to go to um, a haunted house. It was at uh, this one school. I think it was a private Catholic school they did. And they did, they would do whatever you you would tell them before you went in, whether you wanted the scary version or the not so scary version. And so the people, they would just adjust. And so she asked for the not so scary version. It was still scary, but to her, but not so much. The people were just nice and kind. And I was like, This never occurred to me. This is a great idea, (laughs) depending on the age of the people coming in.
0: Yeah.
2: I didn't go to too many like haunted houses, but as a kid, my dad took us to one. And I think he probably knew the guy. There was a guy in a gorilla outfit, but he like, you know, faced him down when the guy came after us. And I'm like, (laughs) you
1: know, he's got to know
2: that guy because this is not, it just seems too, too much. But it was still cool to have your dad. Who, uh, you know, not there. always the most, yeah, it's not always the most emotionally, you know, present dad to do that. So that part was cool. But my second wife has had a lot of, uh, you know, traumatic uh, experiences in her past, but she wanted to try going to a haunted house. And I'm like, are you sure? And she said, yes. And we went on a haunted hayride. And of course, she screamed really loud. And so they targeted her as, okay, we got to go after the screamer. Mm-hmm. And they're not supposed to touch you, but. They still did. Oh. And I was like, she's like put up her leg to stop this guy. And he's like, what are you doing? And I said, you need to get away from her. And he said, we're not trying to hurt her. And I said, you don't understand. I am trying to protect you. <laughs> and a couple minutes later, she grabbed him and threw him off the back of the thing. Good for her. And she had no memory of it. Uh, and <laughs> it's like, we have not. I blanked out. I don't know. Yeah. Did I oh, one? Seriously. <laughs> yeah, really? No, seriously. And so, because of the trauma she's had. So, we've never been back okay, to one. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But, probably better. But that kind of thing, thing, you know, s- seeing that, because I never, never had that kind of level of trauma in my life. And she's r- worked really, really hard to overcome it. You know, she's my hero. I'm so proud of her. But seeing that when it does come up is, is really hard because it lets me know just how affected she was by the things. Not all of which she'll tell me about, just because... I'm too soft-hearted and it would haunt me forever. Mm. Um, So she tries to protect
1: me from some of that. On Uh, the flip side, her throwing that guy off the ride, I mean, her asking to go on that haunted hayride, there are a lot of people who um, process their trauma by intentionally seeking out something similar to it in in a way that allows them to control. Yeah, yeah, but in a way that allows them to be in control. Right, and so her, you know, throwing that guy off the hair, at her, maybe that I was they hadn't helpful. Touched her.
2: If they hadn't had touched her, they'd have been fine.
1: But I'm saying, even the fact that they did, and that she was able to throw him off the ride, in a way, that might have actually been good for her. That's true. I'm just
2: glad she didn't kill anybody. Yeah, she she used to be an EMT. She knows all kinds of ways to hurt people. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so, a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so especially if she's like not exactly in a fugue state, but you know, mm, if yeah. you're just acting on instinct at that instinct, point, who knows yeah. what you might do? But she's so kind. I mean, she probably threw him off the the, the ride in the nicest way she possibly
0: could. <laughs> it was a controlled throw. Yes,
2: right. We're done right. here. <laughs> yeah. So, and uh, I, the girls, you know, I took them once or twice to to haunted uh, some scarier haunted houses seeing people be kind, you know, when they see the kids be scared, even just the regular ones that don't have the non-scary option. You know, as an adult, I really appreciated that because it's about fun. And, uh, and, you know, I teach college composition courses in addition to creative writing. So I've had students that work, you know, they're, they're the, they're the monsters or whatever in the, the haunted houses and reading papers from their point of view about it, how they, they treat the The different people that come in, of course, they're not necessarily safe either, depending on the the reactions of the people that come in. That was really interesting to see that side of Halloween, because it's not something I ever would have experienced if they hadn't talked to me or written about it in their papers.
1: Any really scary dreams as an adult?
2: Um, somebody trying to get into the house when my kids are in there and I've got to protect them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really scary. You know, I've never been in a fight other than being punched once or twice, like in the stomach or the jaw as a kid. You know, I've never been in a fight. I don't know if you know, in my mind, I think I would do whatever it would take, but I don't want to find out because I don't want to either fail or I don't right. want to hurt somebody. Right. My instinct, especially when they were little was I would kill anybody who tried to hurt my kids, but I just don't know. And so the dreams would be pretty awful. And there never was anybody ever, ever, ever in those dreams. I never found anybody because if you found somebody, then you could deal with it. <laughs> then you would know what you're dealing with. Yeah. If you don't find anybody. It's still a possibility. You know, it's like Schrodinger's cat's pretty terrifying. If you think about it,
1: yeah. if you never get the chance to open that box and see. Yeah. Has there been a time in your adult life when you felt completely calm or safe or bliss?
2: Well, you know, probably the, this also goes for when I was younger. We used to have like Dachshunds growing up, and being around them was awesome. And then didn't have dogs for a long time. My first wife didn't like them, and then we just happened to rescue a Dachshund. And once my like, uh my wife now saw how I am with dogs, she's like, "You need a dog for your psychological <laughs> health." So you know, ha- having a uh, having the little ones like that with me. I'm just at peace with dogs like that. I love being around little kids for similar reasons. They just, they're just they just so alive in what they are. So I love being around little kids. I feel peace then. Um, sometimes when I'm teaching, if everything's going well, when I'm writing, I, even if it's like driving me insane because it's not working, like I'm bashing my head against a brick wall, I still feel at peace. Um, watching a really good movie, really good horror movie, I feel at peace. I remember once putting on—I forget what it was. It was some slasher movie, and I fell asleep to the the sweet, sweet sounds of screaming and chainsaws. So, <laughs> you know, when you're a horror fan, it's it's hard to explain to people, but stuff like that can mm-hmm. be really comforting because it's you know you don't take it seriously the same way people who don't enjoy those kind of movies do. It's it's different. See, so, yeah, there, there there are still times I feel at peace, and getting older helps too. I'm 59 now, and it's. Mm. There seems to be, you know, a lot of the, okay, you know, I'm not 20 and I don't have to worry about dying tomorrow. You know, I've made it to 59 and I've accomplished a lot of what I wanted to do. My kids are grown up and it's not like I want to check out anytime soon, but. Some of the anxiety has gone. Yeah, it's one more. It's one more there. And yeah, sure, you're getting closer to, to the end, but you also have a pretty good idea of how things have turned out up to this point. Mm-hmm. So I find myself being at peace a little
1: more often, just in general. That's good. I'm curious about the think about the dogs. Uh, mm-hmm. you said that you love dogs. Just wondering what there is with that that brings you such peace.
2: I just I feel a connection with them. I like cats, but I don't feel the same kind of connection. And my wife says it's because you know growing up in a household that it was really lonely with my mom being you know disconnected the way she was. My dad being emotionally connect- disconnected too. He just had no clue how to handle it. And so just didn't. And it was just a strange kind of environment. Uh, The three of us kids kind of separated. We were in our rooms a lot. Eventually, I decided that that wasn't good. So I just visited each person every day and talked to them in their place. And slowly but surely, we all ended up in the family room. And maybe we didn't talk a lot, but we were together. But then she said, you know, when the dogs were there, I had them because they emotionally relate. They can't help it. And so I had them in a place to kind of emotionally connect to and relate to. And they still do that for me. She says, I don't smile or laugh or anything like I do when I've I've got a dog with me. Hmm. So I guess that's just it. They were, you know, they were there when I needed them and it just, they still, you know,
1: I still connect to them that way. That I, I do understand now. I, um, my parents divorced when I was about two and a half and I went to go live with, other family members, um, an aunt and uncle for a while. And then some other stuff happened. So I had to go live with my grandmother. My grandmother was not very emotionally, uh, available, but we had a family dog and there were times where I felt like the dog loved me more than my grandmother did, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So yeah, I can definitely relate to that. So the next two questions I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask at the same time because it could be the same answer for both, or it could be two different answers. And being more of a literary literary person, normally we ask movies, but I guess in your case, we could also take books if you'd prefer, but I'll ask it in the sense of movies. And then if you want to choose books, you can do that instead. Books are actual. Yeah. Uh, I would say, what movie have you watched more times than any other? And what would you say is your favorite movie?
2: Oh my God! What movie have I seen more times than any other? In the theater was the Blues Brothers.
1: Really?
2: We watched we watched that so many times, and I, I I made us all put together our own Blues Brothers tribute band. <laughs> we had a couple <laughs> gigs. I got to <laughs> be Elwood. It was fun. I don't know what about that movie was so cool, but oh, I've seen Halloween so many times, the original one. My do- oldest daughter loves Halloween. One of my favorite things was when she first started watching movies as a kid. That whenever the tension would get to her too much, she would like scold the, the, the main character, and she'd always give them a middle initial. She'd go, Michael J. Myers, you stop that right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was so awesome, you know, watching a way to kind of diffuse that. So maybe, you know, Halloween, the thing, the thing's awesome. I've seen that I don't know how many times. All the big universal horror movies, all the big hammer horror movies, all the uh, Edgar Allan Poe, sort of Edgar Allan Poe movies <laughs> that Roger Corman did, loosely adapted. I've seen all those a zillion times. And uh, I often will go through, okay, it's my time to go through the, all of them again, because I haven't seen them for a while. Uh, those are like big movies of my childhood, but uh, I cycle through them.
1: So probably all those. Hmm. So that was uh, one that you've watched more times than any other. How about a favorite?
2: Well, oh, I can't pick favorites of anything because it always just shifts. <laughs> um, I guess if I, if I had to pick like a favorite favorite, I'd probably, I don't know, I mean, Jaws had the biggest impact on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the images that shows up in uh, a lot of my stories is like this. It's like a black hole at the center of all creation that feeds on everything. The gaping maw. Yeah, and it was just only like a few weeks ago, I, I saw this uh, Megalodon toy or whatever, you know, like nice little nature kind of plastic thing. So I ordered it. When I got it, I turned it toward my face and I saw the mouth and I'm like, well, holy shit, that's, that's that image that keeps showing up in my stories. <laughs> so maybe that one, but maybe the thing, because it seems almost like it's a perfect horror movie in all kinds of ways. And it's. You know, the thing is there, but it's all about the people and the pressure on the people. And it's got that, that element. It's got body horror stuff. It's got the can you trust the people closest to you? It's also really imaginative So and got really good imagery. So it, it, I like it that way. It's got the super cool ambiguous ending that you're never, ever going to know which in a lot of ways is so much closer to real life. I always hate it when they, special like in the, the, the movie um, Sinister, which was uh, pretty good until the damn college professor comes along and says, well, the thing that you're dealing with is an ancient god named, <laughs> like, you would never find that shit out. You would have this thing that was in your life and things would happen and then you'd never know if you even survived. You wouldn't even know what killed you. Right. And yeah. so uh, I think in a lot of ways, maybe the thing, would probably be my if I had to pick a favorite right now. I guess I'd pick that
1: one. Okay, going back to the Blues Brothers, just because it's something different and and might uh, raise something interesting. Um, before I get into that, at least I, I know that you know what a rubber biscuit is. Oh yeah, I say rubber biscuit. <laughs> that was my favorite. My father had the uh, the A track of the soundtrack of that movie, <laughs> and for some reason, I loved that that song.
0: This doesn't have anything to do with a game involving circles, does it?
1: A game of what?
0: Involving circles, does it?
1: Not that I'm aware of. With, no, with biscuits. I don't know. Yeah, well, you lost me. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No they there, Ignore me. There's a there's a song on the soundtrack, uh I think it's called Rubber Biscuit, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean there there's a there's a rubber biscuit thing that Elwood does, so yeah. Yeah, yeah I sang it in our, or maybe it was our, like our little three song concert we did.
1: Yeah. What um why did you watch that one so much? What did you love about that one? <laughs>
2: It was funny. There was energy to it. There was a lot of music. And back at the time, you know, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi were on Saturday Night Live. And so we you know, watched them there. And so with those comedians, them, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, they were big box office draws for us. Um, I was devastated when John Belushi died. I was driving in my car and heard it on the radio. I still remember. It was like the first kind of, you know, everybody probably has a first celebrity person who has died often Maybe it's somebody like uh, Kurt Cobain or whatever, you know, musician. But for me, it was John Belushi.
1: Yeah. I didn't feel hugely emotionally connected to Cobain, but I remember where I was when I found out that they were when I heard. Yeah. Normally this is where we would talk about a summary and then, you know, give you a chance to either tell me I'm right or wrong or point something else out that we've missed. The two things that really seem to be coming up a lot are body horror and vulnerability. There's been a number of other things that have come up, but um, those two I think stand out more than the other ones. Mm -hmm. Unless you think there's something that we've missed or that you think is bigger.
2: No, no, because I think a lot of the things fall under those labels. Other things really well. And vulnerability works great for a horror story because if you're not vulnerable, there's no horror, right? You know, if you put like an Arnold Schwarzenegger type, you know, commando figure up against a monster, like in Predator it's not a horror story it's an action story with a monster which is cool but you know you put you or me up against predator we wouldn't last very long but, you know it's it's a horror story because we are vulnerable so I, I do think that's a big a big thing in horror is the vulnerability the thing that makes that
1: uh makes a horror story is the vulnerability of, of at least one of the characters right and so the natural question then is do you have any idea why it is that that is an important topic to you.
2: I don't know. I mean, it could be, you know, coming from, uh, you know, having the, my my uncle die so early and being aware that because it was weird. They, they tell me this isn't true, but the story that I remember being told is that he went to the doctor for a heart exam. The doctor said he was fine. He went out into the office to pay his bill and died in the waiting room. And they tell me that's not true. So I'm like, where the hell did I get this story? But the fact that the doctor didn't know, couldn't tell you. The doctor gave you a clean bill of health and you couldn't trust the doctor because you just die as soon as you're out there. The kind of weird sort of ironic nature of it. It just how you know, how vulnerable you are. And then I almost drowned not too long after that. And then probably growing up in that kind of very emotionally sort of suppressed or distant household. It's just, just being aware. So your mom, you know, passing out every once in a while. There's just that sense of vulnerability all the time not really feeling very strong necessarily. And even if you are strong, it doesn't really matter, you know, not, not in the, against the entire universe. So maybe, you know, maybe all those things. Yeah. I'm just kind of guessing, but you know, just no, based on our conversation and what it seems like.
1: Yeah. No, wouldn't you mentioning both the, um, the drowning part and you know, the situation with the family, I'd forgotten those as well, but those also support the same things, like you say. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the next question is why horror? Because wouldn't you don't, Aren't you able, or not you personally, but you know, aren't we able to, I don't want to say dig into, but pursue those same uh, topics in other genres? So is there something that, again, that horror really stands out to you for?
2: It stimulates my imagination in a way other things don't. And I think it's because of that idea of the veneer. We just, we don't know. You know what's what's out there, or what's just beyond what we think of as reality, and just that in and of itself is threatening. I mean, it could be good stuff, but you know, if you uh, like in religious stories, when like you know a messenger of God shows up, people are terrified, <laughs> and you know it doesn't even something or UFOs come down, and you're terrified immediately. So I think that it, just that kind of response to those kind of things. The things themselves are interesting me, but then the response just seems like very real, you know, as opposed to oh well, UFO. I sure hope they're friends, and you run up there and knock on the door. Come out, out, friends. We'd love to meet you. So maybe, maybe you know that. I mean, there's a catharsis too of I am going to go in there and and dig into the things that are bothering me that are churning inside me. Work with them, look at them, play with them. And of course, if you do that, you're controlling them on a certain level, especially if you arrange words onto a page and ideas into an order and then you're all finished and it's done and you send it off. I mean, you it's almost like putting a genie in a bottle, you know, so you take these dangerous genies and decant them. <laughs> put a cork in him and then put it up on the shelf and you're you're at least one more genie's gone. Mm. Uh, But of course it never lasts. The genie gets out. I was going to say, do do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The cork always goes. (laughs) You got to put the genie back in. Yeah. So maybe, you know, maybe all of that, uh, Well, it's, it's, you know, a lot like therapy. I mean, people, my wife's not a horror person, but she loves going to horror convention because of how nice everybody is and how kind and (laughs) sweet and caring. And it's true. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a cliche, but people outside the community don't understand that. I think it's because we deal with a lot of things that, you know, on the outside, everybody thinks we're mentally unbalanced, but we're probably the most mentally healthy people (laughs) that you'd want to find in a lot of ways kind of put a big part of what this show is all about.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's two sides to that. I mean, there's what you might be saying there in terms of horror fans being healthy because they've dug into all the shit. And then the question is, but why are you digging into the shit in the first place? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is the reason for the call. Well, I like what you said about the veneer and the unknown about, because if you think about that alone, if you think about any other genre, Once you bring up the topic of that veneer, it kind of turns into horror because you think about a rom-com and then you've got, you know, who's this person behind the face? There's, you know, there's an element of horror there. I mean, yeah, like I say, multiple other genres, once you bring in that and it's the unknown, you know? Yeah, you know, like in
2: Star Trek, if if the very first time they had the Romulans in the original one, they'd never seen a Romulan before. Yeah. Just their ships. And if they'd never seen one, you don't know what they are could do. But most Star Trek, it's like, oh, here's this person that looks like us with pointed ears. Uh, we say hi, and oh, we're okay. You know, it's like there's no veneer. Once you get to know them, they're not scary at that point. But, but when it could be anything, it's, it's like about the Schrodinger's Box thing. When it could be anything in there that's when it's frightening. Um, it's like the difference between alien and aliens. You know, the first one, we didn't know anything about the alien, but the second one, we know everything.
1: Yeah. And mm-hmm. so
2: even though it's a really great movie, it's not a horror movie. Right. It's a movie with horror elements, but it's an action adventure movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love them both, but they're different. I love
0: it. Yeah. It does make it more of an action movie simply by the fact that, you know, the, uh, the villain and, and the threat.
2: Right. Yeah. yeah. We've got people that think they can handle it, they we know they can't but their attitude they're not scared the same way that uh you know ripley was
1: on the nostromo in the first movie right Mm -hmm. experience changes things yep so last question is there anything relevant that you can think of that hasn't come up on the call or maybe a chance to you know if there was something you thought of earlier and then the conversation took a left turn
2: no i I can't we were talking about just in general like uh the, the sort of mental health aspect of it, I mean, uh, the, the cliche, and I guess it's backed up by sales figures for books and, you know, profits for movies, is that horror does really well in bad times. Mm. So and in good times, not so much. So it does, you know, people do need to, to find something, some measure of control or some way of facing these things. And I've said this a million times, but it's like you can't look at an eclipse directly. It's too strong, but you can look mm. at it indirectly. You know, like they used to have you make the little two cards with a pinhole and you could watch mm. the shadow, you know, whatever, turn into like a half shadow or something. And you could sort of sort of watch the eclipse that way. And I think horror works that way. I think it horror allows us to indirectly face stuff, almost like a buffer on a computer where it just it can filter things through enough that it doesn't overwhelm us or hit us all at once. Mm. Uh, and I think it's one of the, the, the great things that it can do. I've also, I also tell people that I thought of this after 9-11 when people on the HW message board were like, what's the point of us writing horror? And I'm like, we don't write stuff that really deals with horror. You know that, right? We're, we're like rodeo clowns. <laughs> we stand in <laughs> front of the real darkness. To the, seriously, we stand in front of the real darkness to distract people from it in a lot of ways. Because you're like, "Oh, look, here's Jason. You know, it's, it's not. You know, a horrible cancer, or a horrible disease, or a horrible car wreck, or you know, just another person that just doesn't like you and wants to hurt you. You know, it's this horrible force that uh, you know will come to get you because you're, you know, death shows up in person to get you because you're special. Uh, mm-hmm. You get this wonderful cinematic death that you know is, is fake and entertaining, uh, as opposed to just you know being in hospice for nine months or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it really helps in a lot of ways. So that sort of buffering effect, along with that radio. I mean uh, uh, clown effect I don't think they call them clowns anymore rodeo clowns I forget what they're called uh, hmm. but the, the basic idea where you distract right. from the danger for somebody else
1: I really like that analogy that I've never heard that before but I like that
2: <laughs> yeah, it me just too. seems to me the way uh, the way it works so I, I think there's a lot horror does for people and I think that in a lot of ways, Probably all kinds of stories help in all kinds of different ways, but I think
1: horror can help in a way that is probably pretty unique to the genre. The other thing that I was thinking of while you were talking there, I was re- refreshing my memory by going through the handout that you gave out during your um, panel at StokerCon. And on one one of the pages, you've got a breakdown of a number of the different possible ways that a horror story's hero can um I can't think of the right word at the moment, but you know, a couple of different outcomes mm-hmm. and just previously earlier in the day, I had been having a conversation with an ex-girlfriend of mine who has been through some tough shit herself. And I was amused because in the conversation I was having with her, she self-identified as a bitch, uh, frankly, because of some of the things that she's gone through, but it's funny because then I, not too long later, I'm going through this list of these outcomes and I realized that part of the reason that I've never thought of her as a bitch is because I guess in some way, I had always seen her as being a horror of her own or a hero of her own horror stories. And I was, I was identifying her in a number of those different outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how that exactly ties up with any of the things that you just said, but you, what you said, triggered well, that, that because, thought in
2: me. yeah, because there's so many different endings I mean we can it, it, there's so much different kind of catharsis that can happen, and the other thing about horror that's cool is that horror fans always get happy endings, so you know it doesn't matter yeah. whether the hero survives or the monster eats them, we're happy
1: either way,
0: it's so always point, good. even if it's one of those uh, grim dark you didn't see that coming ending, it's still right,
1: right f-
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I think more the point there is that everybody's lives have multiple story arcs overlapping all the time. And right. when you say that there are multiple endings, there's different endings to different story arcs, but we're experiencing many of them simultaneously because each different story or each different scenario in our life is ending in different ways, but they all combine, uh, But that's all another topic.
2: (laughs) Well, the the hero's (laughs) journey doesn't allow that. It only allows for one outcome if you follow it, you know, pretty strictly.
1: Well, there's always that that saying of you live long enough to, uh, you know, or or see yourself become the thing. And that's what happens after the the hero story ends is, you know, either you do something good with it, but if you don't do something good with it, then you become the evil. And then the new hero has to rise to what you've become the story does continue. It just changes. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I mean, we've been talking for God, an hour, almost two hours now. (laughs) Uh, It's a lot of interesting stuff has come up. I think the real meat of the conversation for you, like you say, it's a lot about vulnerability and digging into that, which like you say, you can't really do outside of horror without addressing some of the depth Cause like I said, I mentioned earlier with the veneer, once you bring that into it, that kind of changes things. Right. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was great. I had a great time. Pleasure. Actually, before we hit the closing, after the fact, we realized that we had forgotten to give Tim a spot to let us know what he was currently working on. I talked with him about that offline and he just said to refer everyone to his website, timwagner.com. We'll also have a link to that on his bio page on our site. And with that, back to the closing. Thank you again to you and to anybody out there listening. Please do come visit us at horrormixeshappy.com We've got a list of people there that we're looking to interview. If you can help us get in touch with any of those people, let us know. If you'd like to have somebody added to the list, let us know. There's links there to our Discord, Twitch. Um, you can buy us coffee, support us on Patreon, uh, buy merch, all kinds of fun stuff. So come check us out.